Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer and all of God's children said, amen. I know you've probably seen the bumper stickers around. They've been around for a long time that say, let's keep Christ in Christmas. Certainly it's a popular slogan, whether it's on a bumper sticker or on a billboard at this time of year. Even politicians have tried to push through legislation that encourage store clerks to say Merry Christmas rather than season's greetings or happy holidays. Their advice is, yes, let's enjoy Santa, Frosty, the Snowman, and all the other second-tier Christmas characters, but let's never forget the true reason for the season, the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, who could argue with that? Do any of us really think that there's a danger of losing Jesus amidst the wrapping paper and all the wreaths? Sure, a huge commercial holiday has just rolled past us or rolled over us, depending on how you look at it. The retail steamroller has little to do with the babe in the manger. Even with the push for consumerism, isn't his place there pretty secure? All over the country, children of church families have recently put on Christmas pageants that tell the story of the nativity. The cast of characters may vary, but always there are three individuals at the heart of the story, and we know them, Mary, Joseph, and the Christ child. Angels and shepherds come and go in various numbers. Wise men show up bearing the gifts, or they may hold off until Epiphany. There may be an assortment of animals, either real or portrayed by kids in costume. There may even be an innkeeper to say, sorry, no vacancy, and then slam the door on the wandering couple. Yet there's one figure in the biblical narrative that you'll rarely ever see portrayed in a children's Christmas pageant. And that's King Herod. He's just too mean, too nasty for that holy night. It's common on Christmas Eve to read the story from Matthew about how wise men came to the court of King Herod asking where they could find the child born king of the Jews. Herod, of course, was the real live king of the Jews. But he was too crafty a politician to show his hand too soon. There was intelligence to be gathered. And if these naive foreigners could be enlisted as spies to lead him to this king of the Jews, his thought was so much the better. Fortunately, the visitors from the east weren't slackers in the intelligence department either. They could see right through Herod's sleazy hospitality. They returned to their own country, according to the scripture, by another way. And that's where our Christmas Eve reading from Matthew typically ends. But that's only the beginning of a two-part story. Nobody ever wants to read the second part on Christmas Eve because the details are too horrific. Wise men dropping off baby presents is one thing. What comes next is pretty much intense violence. Not the sort of thing we want kids to hear before heading home to leave milk and cookies for Santa. Visions of sugar plums could be replaced by bloody nightmares. Herod is enraged when he finds out the Magi have given him the slip. And so he sends his soldiers out to commit an atrocity. They're to break into every Jewish home in the region around Bethlehem, pull every male child from the arms of their mothers and fathers, and kill them. 
believe it or not, there's a Christmas carol about this woeful situation. It's called the Coventry Carol. Ironically, it has one of the most beautiful melodies of our Christmas music. But the words are a sad lullaby sung by grieving mothers to their children. Herod the king in his raging charged he hath this day his men of might in his own sight all young children to slay. Then woe is me, poor child, for thee, and ever mourn and say for thy parting, nor say nor sing, bye-bye, lully, lullay. What part does this dark episode have to play in the bright and joyous tale that we know of Christmas? It certainly is a terrible note to be played, a dissonant note struck in the closing bars of a beautiful melody. Until now, everything was sweetness and light. Even We don't even get mad at the innkeeper anymore. But then the fists of Herod's soldiers are pounding on Bethlehem's doors. The mothers of the city of David weep their bitter tears and cradle their lifeless children in their arms. Lalay, thou little tiny child. Herod at this point in history is a bitter old man. In his final year of a 41-year reign, he was fully capable of playing a role in these atrocities. Herod was king in name only. Everyone knew that. It was the Romans who really called the shots. Herod's job was to do their dirty work, subduing a rebellious colony on behalf of the emperor. That task he performed, and he relished that task. During the course of his reign, Herod had at least nine wives and 14 children, perhaps more. These are the only ones we know of. There were probably more, but daughters' births were not always recorded. He put one of his wives, Mariamne I, on trial for adultery. Chief witness for the prosecution was her own mother, who had said testified against her daughter only because she feared for her own life. Herod executed her, which led her mother to declare herself queen, charging that Herod was mentally unfit to rule. That really wasn't a smart decision on her part, because it wasn't long before his, he put his mother-in-law to death without a trial. But there's even more, which is sad. There were two young sons remaining from Herod's marriage to Mary Amney, As they grew older, the king considered them threats to his power. He sought to put them on trial for treason, but Emperor Augustus put a stop to that by ordering the sons and the father to reconcile. It didn't take long for Herod to outmaneuver the emperor, sending a huge financial donation to revive the Olympic Games. In exchange, the emperor allowed Herod to kill his own children. Later, though, he was heard to mutter, I would rather be Herod's dog than Herod's son. If that's not enough, after murdering his wife and two sons, Herod named his eldest son Antipater, a child of a different mother, the exclusive heir to his throne. But you knew what happens, right? It didn't take long before he realized he couldn't tolerate a rival. He grew jealous of the person he had just named his successor, put him on trial for treason like the others, and had him executed. The emperor was so appalled that he refused to allow any of Herod's remaining sons to claim the title of king. 
although three of them would eventually rule as tetrarchs, each governing a third of his father's reign. Thirty-three years later, Herod Antipas would look upon Jesus at last, and as he stood before him in chains wearing a crown of thorns, we don't know when it was exactly that the Magi stopped by the palace to pay their courtesy call. But it was probably during the last turbulent year of Herod's life, the year he executed his third son. Can any of us doubt now that hearing some of his story that this man was capable of sending his own soldiers to kill children? Jesus, of course, escaped that fate. As we hear in the story, the angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream, warning him to take his little family and flee to Egypt. There they probably settled in the thriving Jewish quarter of Alexandria, a great center of learning. And it's possible Jesus spent his early three years there, learning the Talmud from distinguished rabbis of that city. Surely some of us find it troubling that God <clears throat> excuse me, extends an angel to rescue Jesus, but lets those other children perish. It's another thorny part of our talking about God we face so often in the world, and we've talked about it before here, the problem of evil. The question of why a just and all-powerful God allows human suffering to take place, and there is no easy answer to that. But King Herod does seem well-suited to play the role of evil incarnate. So the question we have to ask when we hear this story on this day when we talk about the innocents that have been killed, should we reserve a role for Herod in next year's Christmas pageant? I would encourage you to breathe. It's a rhetorical question. Herod does not belong in a children's Christmas play. But that doesn't mean we should forget about him entirely. Herod's important to this story because he helps us remember what kind of world we live in and why this world still needs a savior. In her book, Amazing Grace, a Vocabulary of Faith, contemporary Christian author Kathleen Norris contrasts the fear of Herod with the faith and, of Mary and Joseph. Norris tells of preaching on Herod on Epiphany Sunday in a small country church in a poor area of the Hawaiian, Hawaiian island of Oahu. It was an area of the island that tourists were warned to stay away from, an area where those who served the tourist industry as maids and tour bus drivers could afford to live. The church had much to fear, alcoholism, drug addiction, rising property costs and crime. The residents came to church for hope. In her sermon, she pointed out that the wise men who traveled so far to find Jesus were drawn to him as a sign of hope. The church, Norris told her congregation, is a sign of hope for the community. Its programs, its thrift store had become important community signs of hope. The church represented said Norris, a lessening of fear, shadowy power, and an increase in the available light. She continued to say that that's what Christ's coming celebrates. His light shed abroad across all, all our lives. She ended her sermon by encouraging the congregation, like the ancient wise men, not to return to Herod, but to find another way. 
She encouraged them to leave Herod in his palace, surrounded by flatterers, all alone with his fear. Even if we've all had a fine Christmas, there are plenty of neighbors on this planet whose lives are tainted with suffering. People for whom the least of their worries is whether or not they manage to get into the Christmas spirit. What about the desperate refugees we see all across our world escaping war and oppression? A significant number of refugees all around the world are Christian. Some of them are members of the oldest churches in the world. They're wondering if they'll ever return to their land, to the land of their ancestors, and whether those ancient churches will ever again resound with Christian hymns. What kind of Christmas did they have this year? Then there are those who are afflicted by poverty here. Sure, lots of our neighbors had themselves a merry little Christmas, but a great many more find themselves far removed from the vision of perfection and peace that are often seen on the sparkly Christmas cards. Jesus didn't come into the world to bring us a midwinter festival of peace and contentment. He wasn't born into a quiet Christmas card scene, but rather into a sort of world where families wander homeless and corrupt tyrants rule by murder and deceit. Jesus didn't come to offer relief from the world. He came to save it. As for us as Christmas-weary disciples... We have a role in carrying out that mission, using the spiritual gifts that each of us is given along with whatever material resources we have at our disposal. If we strive to keep Herod in Christmas, maybe it will be just a little easier to remember our mission. To present Christ in a world that is in need of hope. As we approach a new year, we know that our world and the community around us are in need of that message. The church can and should be a sign of hope. Not only can and should the church be, but you all should be carrying the hope of the Christ child in different ways, in different places, as much as you can. Amen.